Now again, we have a very unfortunate translation from the King James Version in verse number 7. Remember them that have the rule over you. Number one, it is not rule and it is not over. It is remember your leaders or your guides. Never in the original translation are overseers spoken of as being over an assembly. That's unfortunately translations in our King James Version. Look at verse number 17. Obey them that have the rule. Obey your leaders and submit, for they watch for your souls. And then just for completeness sake, verse 24, salute all them that are your leaders with all the saints. One final portion. So we've collected so far three different, four different titles. We've looked at elders, overseers or bishops, shepherds, and leaders. One final portion to show the consistency of this. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 1. The elders who are among you I exhort who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that should follow. Feed or shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his, which, which is among you, taking oversight. So again, we have elders, shepherds, and those who are practicing oversight, overseers. So four different terms, all referring to the same men who are given the tremendous responsibility of, of leadership in God's assembly. Why four different names? And you may, be even, may even be able to justify a fifth that we haven't looked at, but why these four different names? Well, each of them is stressing a different quality a characteristic of those who would be leading the flock of God. When you think of an elder, it's his spiritual maturity. It's not a novice. Someone doesn't, now it doesn't necessarily refer to chronological age, but someone of spiritual maturity, someone who has developed and has mature years behind them. When you're thinking of the shepherd, it's not his maturity, but it's his activity. Wherever you read of that, he's, he's, he's to be feeding, he's to be caring for people. So it's his activity that's in view. When you're thinking about guides, those who lead, it's their dignity. They are walking before the flock. They are leading the way as examples, and it is their dignity that is in view. And when you think of the overseer, it's his alacrity, his attentiveness. He's watching over, he's looking over, and caring for others. He's alert is the idea. He's alert to the needs and the potential for danger in the flock. So looked at another way, as far as the elder, it is his worth. His worth. He's a man of sterling character and worth. He's been through the experience of years. He's developed spiritual maturity. And he's a man that it's his worth that's in view. When you're thinking about the overseer, it's his watchfulness. He's watchful. He's looking after the flock. When you're thinking about the shepherd, it's not now so much his worth or his watchfulness, but it's his work. It's a work to feed the people of God. And when you think about the leader or the guide, of course, you're thinking about his walk. He's walking in such a way that others can follow him. He's leading the way, not just by what he is teaching, but by his example, by his very life, he is leading the way. So all of these names are brought together so that the Bible does not know of a pastor with an elder board under him. 
The word of God does not know of a bishop over a group of churches in a locality and under shepherds who, who serve under him. The bishop is the overseer, is the shepherd, is the elder, is the guide, all the same as far as names. Now, critical also is not just the names but the numbers. They are always in the plural. Paul called for the elders of the church at Ephesus. Peter writes to the elders who are among you. The only time elder, overseer is used in the singular is where it's describing the character or requirements for the man who would seek to give himself to that work. He's given that as a standard against which to judge his own life and his own fitness. So the names and the numbers. And now we'll come to the nature of his work. So let me just talk for a few minutes here about the making of a shepherd. As in many, many instances in the Word of God, there are two things that converge. There is what we read of in Acts chapter 20. Paul there speaking to the overseers, he speaks about over the which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers. So there is the work of the Spirit of God. But now turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. You will forgive me if I seem to be correcting the King James Version manuscript all the time here, but again, here we have a very glaring problem in the translation, verse number one. If any man desire, verse number one, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, there's no, no word in that verse in the original for the word office. Again, it was satisfying the needs of ecclesiastical individuals back in 1611, but there is no word for office. The idea of the verse, or the verse more literally means, if any man lays himself out for the work of overseership, he is desiring a good work. So there is the desire implanted in the heart of a man, and there is the work of the Spirit of God in bringing him to fitness and to Ability to be useful. Now, we don't have time to look at all these qualifications. You can look at them in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You will see that there is training in the factory, in the place of work. There is the trials in the family. There is the testimony in the fellowship. And there is testing in the world and in the field. So God is going to use his place of work. He's going to use the family. He's going to use the assembly. He's going to use his interaction. All of these things brought together, not only where he must have a good testimony, but all of these things are going to begin to, to mold and shape this man to be the kind of man who can lead the people of God. Now, maybe we should just mention here very, very hurriedly this very, very simple truth, and that is this. When you're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and looking at the list of what I would call qualifications... There's nothing there about gift. Everything is about character. Character always trumps gift. Forgive the word trump. Okay? Uh, character is always more important than gift. Now, that does not mean that a man who leads the people of God 
isn't able to open the word of God and to teach from it. But it, the stress that the word of God places upon leadership is on character more than capability as a preacher. So character is what is stressed. Second thing that needs to be said about 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, is just this. Those lists of qualifications were not given for everyone to sit back and say, well, that brother doesn't meet the qualifications, so I'm, I'm not going to listen to him. And that brother doesn't meet all the qualifications, so I don't think I'll respect him. Those qualifications were given for the man who leads the assembly to judge himself with. And for those who would desire to be a help in God's assembly, to use as a standard for their own lives. It's not given to us as a checklist to disqualify and to choose to not listen to those who we don't think fit the, fit the bill entirely. When a man is given a, a role of responsibility in the assembly, it's not for me to judge him and to say, I will not listen. Listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ said because I think we can get no better authority than this. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke to his disciples, and he said, the, uh, the scribes and Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. They have been given a place of responsibility. Now he said, you do as they say, but don't do as they do. In other words, they are in a place of responsibility. You bow to their authority, but don't follow their example. In other words, Failure on the part of leaders does not excuse me from bowing to the scriptures they hold. So that's vital to see. The authority is the word of God. A man's character is vital. I am responsible for my character and for being as careful as I can that my character is consistent with the word of God. But the authority resides in the word of God. So we're reminded here then the making of a shepherd, it's a personal exercise, something the Spirit of God puts in a man, and then the Spirit of God makes him an overseer through the experiences of life, through family life. He learns, first of all, how to rule in his own house, and as a result of that, he can now learn to take care of the church of God. He's learned to blend authority with compassion in his own home as he raises his children, and he now is able to take that responsibility of compassion and authority and apply it to the church of God. We'll look in a moment at the significance of what we read in first, we didn't read it, but it says in first Timothy chapter three, if a man know not how to rule in his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And I'll just mention it now and come back to it later. Others are familiar with it. Older ones are familiar with it. I'll just mention it for the sake of younger ones now. The only other place the expression that is used in 1 Timothy, taking care, is found in the Word of God. It's found in Luke chapter 10. And it's a Samaritan who takes care of someone who was beaten on the Jericho Road. And when he leaves after taking care, he gives the innkeeper two pence and says, take care care of you continue my work take care of him and when i come again so taking care is used in luke chapter 10 of, of the care for a broken wounded individual who was brought to a place of safety and a place of security and if we have time we'll touch on that later because it is significant the making of a shepherd 
It would be nice, wouldn't it? As you think about the, uh, the making of a shepherd, if we had some, uh, some model to follow, some, uh, some example of, of the perfect shepherd. Well, turn to Isaiah chapter 40 for just a moment, and uh, let's see if we have an example. Two places in the Old Testament to turn to. Isaiah 40, first of all, and verse number 11. Isaiah 40, verse number 11 He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. That's the shepherd who will one day come to the nation of Israel. And this is what he will do. He will feed them. He will lead them. He will carry them. He will tend them. Tremendous truths just in that one verse that we could dwell on. Turn, though, to one other portion, Ezekiel 34. Just a couple of books over, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel. I don't know if you've ever read Ezekiel. You're going to have to look at him someday in heaven if he comes up to you and says, Hey, did you ever read my book? And you say, well, would you please autograph it for me here? That's too late then. Uh, Ezekiel 34. Now, just to save time as a background, in the Old Testament, God frequently referred to the kings of Israel as shepherds. Shepherds, shepherding his people. Now, here in Ezekiel 34, God is going to castigate, literally, the, the kings of Israel for their failure to shepherd the people of God. And he says in verse number 14, that he will be their shepherd. Now notice what he will do as shepherd. I will feed them in good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There they shall lie in a good fold, and in fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek those that were, were lost. I will bring again that which was driven away. I will bind up that that was broken, strengthen that that was sick. I will destroy the fat and the strong, and I will feed them with judgments, and so on. That's how God shepherds. He feeds, he seeks, he restores, he binds up, he cares. So we, we do have, we do have model, the model shepherd scene. It is selfless, it is sacrificial, it is sensitive to need. It is scriptural. He, he, he's conscious of the, of the varying needs. One size doesn't fit all. And so we have here something then of the, of the model shepherd given to us. What about the mandate then for shepherds? We've already mentioned character. And 1 Peter 5 reminds us of the need for unity among the shepherds. Disunity among the shepherds means disorder among the flock and starvation. So there's a need for unity, there's a need for harmony in leadership, there's as well the need for vigilance. But I want to just stress, because we have read it so far in four places, and we could go to at least two other places. So let me go to them. Listen and just see if you can catch what is being stressed. The Lord Jesus is speaking to Peter 
in John chapter 21. Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Peter, feed my sheep. Acts chapter 20. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof. We read it in Isaiah 40. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Ezekiel 34, I will feed my flock. 1 Peter chapter 5, the elders who are among you I exhort, who also am an elder, feed the flock. Something repetitious? Something, something getting across? Every place you read about the responsibility of those who would care for the assembly of God, the top of the list is not signing letters, it's not designing halls, it's not consigning to the back seat, it's not resigning someday. The chief thing given is feed the flock of God. So that is the mandate that is given to all who would lead the people of God to, to feed the church of God. So the mandate then. So let me come then in the last 25 minutes or so to the, the ministry of, of shepherds. Number one, we've already mentioned Food to be provided. Food must be provided for the flock. Now, there are other things that have to be done, we realize. But as I've mentioned already, every list, every instruction, every example, feeding the flock of God is given priority. Making sure the people of God are fed. Now, you'll forgive a hobby horse. Uh, it's always dangerous, but... Um, since it shows failure on my own part, it's not a bad hobby horse. I sat back one year, around this time of the year, the end of, the, the end of a year, and I thought, what ministry, what ministry has the assembly gotten over the past year? You know, 15 minutes after the breaking of bread, a little cheering up word, a little encouraging word, or a devotional thought is lovely, but we are responsible to teach the doctrines of the Word of God. We are responsible to equip the people of God with the Word of God. Are we doing it? Am I doing it in my own local assembly? And have to confess failure. And Bible reading sometimes can get so bogged down and can drag on sometimes just three or four verses a week and people debating over tenses and over moods and over voices and uh, all the rest and people are leaving without, without food, without appreciating the great things of the Word of God. The need for vision for the assembly. Having a vision. It almost would sound almost like heresy to say, do you ever sit down and have a goal for the next year? What we would like the assembly to, to cover in ministry. What teaching we need to give. What, uh, what should be our vision for the assembly for 2018? What goals do we have? Be nice to have a series of gospel meetings, yes. Week of children's meetings, yes. But as far as feeding the people of God, do we have a vision? Vision is a, a vital thing in leadership. Back in um, 1948, just after the war years, Thomas Watson was head of IBM. And Thomas Watson, his vision was this that there might be room in the world for five computers, but I can't imagine any more ever needed. He didn't get his bonus that year, okay? And uh, he didn't get his bonus many years after that. No vision. Now, I know it's in a different context, 
and a different meaning, but you know so well the word in Proverbs, where no vision is, the people perish. But uh, while that has a slightly different context, the, uh, the truth is still the same. The need for vision, visionary leaders, people that have vision and are able to bring the people of God on board and accomplish that and feed the people of God and teach and strengthen the assembly for God. So the prime thing, number one thing is food to be provided. But then footsteps need to be guided. Footsteps need to be guided. And much of that is done as private counsel. And maybe here's a good time to mention this. Um, I have little doubt that at the judgment seat of Christ, wives of overseers will likely get greater rewards than overseers. Number one, they sacrifice time that legitimately could be devoted to them. Their husbands are either visiting or their husbands are preparing or spending time in the scriptures. So wives of overseers know tremendous sacrifice for the sake of the work of God. But secondly, a lot of teaching is done over a kitchen table or a dining room table where an overseer's wife opens the house and people are invited in. And in that house setting, first of all, people, people get to be known better than just the casual shake hand at the back of the hall. And people begin to open up and people begin to express their concerns and their burdens. And counsel and guidance is given. And many times footsteps are guided in a home because a, a wife is willing to go to the, the expense the trouble, the labor of providing all that's needed and not worrying about whether there's a little bit of dirt on the carpet or there's a little bit of soiling on the, uh, on the, on the sofa or you know, all the things that we all worry about and she's, her home is open and used for the Lord. And so she is an integral part of what we're looking at here. So there is food that needs to be provided. There are footsteps that need to be guided. There's fruitfulness that needs to be encouraged. Just those private, brief words of encouragement to young men, to young women, as they, as they begin to develop, as they begin to grow, as they begin to express usefulness in the assembly. Just simple words of encouragement. I've told it before, but uh, the story is told about a young man by the name of Michael down in Baltimore number of years ago. And he had ADHD, and he had probably a few other things too. And he was floundering in the swimming pool, trying to take lessons. His two sisters put him to shame. And the teachers told his parents, Michael is going to be, nothing, nothing ever good is going to become of Michael. He, he's, he's a write-off, forget it. Well, there was a swimming coach there, Bob. And he watched Michael, and he said to his parents, would it be okay? Do you mind if I, if I just try to encourage him personally? I'll just take him under my wing and I'll try to help him because I think, I think he has potential. Go ahead, give it a try. Well, he not only tried, but when he was done, Michael Phelps won more gold medals than any other person who has ever been in the Olympics. Just 
Just a word of encouragement. Someone who believed in him, who encouraged him, who coached him, who spurred him on to be the very best he could be. Words of encouragement. We scarcely, someone said that we live and die by encouragement. And so often we come and go for meetings and we fail to realize how just a small word of encouragement could help a believer and spur them to what people call your personal best. Well, that's, they use that in athletics, but I think we should use it in Christianity as well. Quality Christianity, QC if you will, to be the very best we can be for the Lord. Words of encouragement, want, rather than words of discouragement, rather than trying to find fault and flaws and inconsistencies, inconsistencies with each other, to try to be a help one to another in any way that we possibly can. Could I just encourage, well, both brethren and sisters here. Brethren to appreciate sisters and, and to recognize this. You realize, don't you, uh, it's our sisters who bear most reproach as compared to brethren. Now, you know what I mean. I could go to a, a business meeting, a medical conference, and I, I might just have a, you know, I would have a can of Diet Pepsi in my hand. And uh, nobody would say, uh, why are you dressed like that? And why is your hair cut short? And why don't you have earrings? And uh, where's your makeup? And, uh, you know. But a sister, the moment she walks into an office, the moment she walks into another group of women, every eye is boom. And the absence of all the makeup, the modest dress, our sisters bear the reproach, and they should be encouraged. They should be all we can do to encourage them in their testimony because they bear the reproach publicly for the name of Christ far more than we brethren. So fruitfulness in the lives of believers to be encouraged. Paul reminds us in Acts chapter 20, there are foes. There are foes we need to guard against. The need for discernment, the need for wisdom, when you let something go, when you realize something has potential for tremendous damage, foes that have to be guarded against. There's the flock that needs to be cared for. Now let me come back to Acts chapter 2, Luke chapter 10 for just a moment. That man was marked by compassion. When that certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, when he came to where he was, he saw him and he had compassion. So a shepherd needs a heart of compassion. Not coldness, not callousness, but compassion. It doesn't mean softness. It doesn't mean that you're wishy-washy. It means a heart that feels. A heart that can enter into the grief and the needs and the hurts and the damage and the wounding of others. He had compassion. Then he cared for him. Now that meant a lot of different things. I would think it was not very convenient to get down to where somebody was wounded, bleeding, and left half dead and begin tending to his wounds. I would think it would be kind of messy. You know, it was before the days of latex gloves and uh, masks. You know, you were, you, were, you were there with it, okay? And uh, it would involve a certain amount of inconvenience. And it wouldn't have been very convenient to get off your beast, 
put him on your beast and you do the walking. And then it wouldn't necessarily be the safest place to stop by the side of the road where you knew there were already robbers and thieves and uh, just stop your own journey to care for someone else. And then to go out of your way and take him to the inn and to spend time taking care of him. Reach in your pocket and take out and... So that shepherding, caring for the flock, is going to mean time. There is no substitute for time. Christians cannot schedule their emergencies. Christians cannot schedule their crises to fit in with my busy schedule. It happens when it happens, and you've got to be available and try to be a help to them when it happens. So it means time, inconvenience, it's going to mean digging into your pocket, expense. It's going to mean maybe getting a little bit uh, soiled in life. But caring for the flock. Vital in terms of that. He speaks of, as well, of that there are the fallen that need to be recovered. Ezekiel 34, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now let me, let me show you an important distinction. There are two parables that are somewhat similar. Luke chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 12. On both occasions, the Lord Jesus is doing a miracle on the Sabbath day. And he comes in for the criticism of the people around him. Luke chapter 14, you recall, it was a man, and he was invited to a dinner in a Pharisee's house, and whether it was a plant just to see what would happen or just happened to be, there was a man there with what they called dropsy, likely kidney failure, and the Lord healed him on the Sabbath day, and the chorus of criticism began, and the Lord Jesus Christ says, now wait just a minute. Which of you having an ox or a donkey, if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, won't you pull him out? I mean, logically, won't you pull him out and help him? Well, of course. Well, there's the analogy. But in chapter 12 of Matthew, again, he heals on the Sabbath day. And once again, there's a criticism. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, which of you having a sheep? If he fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, won't he pull him out? That's not what he says. He says, you don't pull sheep. He says, which of you having a sheep? Fall in a pit on a Sabbath day will not lift him out. Lift him out. The ox or the donkey you could pull. You could be at a distance. Just get a rope around his neck and be 20 yards away and pull as hard as you can. And you may strangle him a bit, but you get him out, okay? Uh, but he says that's not how you treat sheep. You don't treat sheep the way you treat ox and donkeys. He says, when it comes to sheep, you have to get close to them. You've got to feel the weight and the burden, and you've got to lift. So it means inconvenience. It means work. It's going to mean expense. It's going to mean time. It's going to mean schedules that are just not quite as perfect as you'd like them to be. He says, you have a responsibility for those who are fallen, to try to lift them. But then he says as well, what about those who have 
about those who are feeble, those who are weak. Now, Paul uses similar words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where he speaks about knowing them that labor among you, over you in the Lord, and so on. And, uh, he, and he speaks then to those who are in leadership to, um, and I, I'm not getting the first word, so let me just read it quickly, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where he speaks to the elders. Warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all. Supporting the weak, those who are feeble, those who need to be helped and, and strengthened and carried. Now, tragically, there are believers that need to be carried sometimes all their lives. A weakness, a feebleness, but still that is the responsibility of those who would lead the people of God. What about those who have gone astray, those who have backslidden, and all of those? The Lord Jesus, again, two similar but totally different parables. We all know them. Chapter 15 of Luke. This man receives sinners, and he speaks of the shepherd going after the sheep until he finds it. What about Matthew chapter 18? Not now sinners involved, but saints, believers who have strayed. And he says the shepherd... If, if he find it. So when it comes to the shepherd and the unsaved, he will find it. When it comes to the shepherd and a believer who has strayed, if he find it. Now, I don't know if you find this the case, but I think it's harder, harder to see someone restored than to see someone saved. Once a person leaves and gets away and gets involved, whether it's embarrassment, whether it's a fear that they'll do it all over again, whatever, but it is, you labor and you work and you visit and you meet with them and you have coffee with them and you discuss things with them and yes, they agree and yes, they agree and they want to come back and it just seems like it never happens. So hard to see people brought back. But that's part of the responsibility of shepherds. And I firmly believe, and I, have, I know of no, no issues here, so I'm not in any way speaking of anyone here. I firmly believe that shepherds seek sheep. Sheep do not seek shepherds. It's our responsibility to go and get them. They're not going to come to us. They're lost. They're wandering. They're away. Shepherds seek sheep. So we are, there's food to be provided. Footsteps to be guided, there is fruitfulness to be encouraged, foes to be guarded against, furtherance of usefulness in their gifts, flocks to be tended, the fallen to be recovered, the feeble to be supported. One final thing, there's the future to be considered. The future to be considered. When you get to my age, even before you get to my age, you begin thinking, who is there for the future? Who is there that God is raising us? It's not a matter of who do I like. Not a matter of uh, you know, who's popular, but who do I see that God is raising up in the assembly? Who do I see that the Spirit of God is preparing for leadership? Because I'd like to pass the baton on while I'm still here and able to be of some help in, in molding and, and helping the next generation of leaders. So looking to the future, realizing that it is God's assembly, not mine. Feed the flock of God, which he has purchased. 
The elders who are among you feed the flock, the little flock over the which it is God's assembly, God's flock. It doesn't belong to the oversight. In fact, interesting, when you come to Philippians chapter 1, and Paul is writing to the assembly, he's going to thank them for a gift, among other things. And he picks up his pen and he says, to the saints, with, with the overseers and deacons, with the bishops and deacons, with the overseers and deacons. He puts the saints first. Because the overseers and deacons serve the saints. The saints are the big thing. The assembly is the big thing in the eye of God. Leadership serves. Deacons serve. But the assembly is the big thing in the eye of God. So we have a care. Responsibility for, for the assembly. And we read it hurriedly. Well, I don't think we read it totally. Hebrews chapter 13, where we have that, those words in around verse 14. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as those that must give an account. That's a solemn, solemn verse. That means that those in leadership will give an account of how they have led the assembly. I recall, to this day I recall, a promising young man, and because of a, a marital problem, turned on his heels, walked out the door. And I remember just asking myself, is there anything else I could have done to have preserved and kept him within the assembly? Because I have to give an account. I'll have to answer at the judgment seat of Christ for my stewardship. We're, Titus chapter 1 reminds us that we are stewards of God. Those who are in leadership are stewards of God. He's committed to our care. His most, the most precious thing upon earth. Acts chapter 20, the, the flock which he purchased with the blood of his own son. He's committed that to our care. We have to give an account of how we have done and so we're reminded here of the tremendous ministry of those who would lead the flock of God and of their responsibility. What about the means? How do you do it? Well, Paul says, Paul's leaving them in Acts chapter 20. He says, I've got two things, two things that I can give you that will be your resource for all the days to come. I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Hebrews chapter 13, remember those who have had the rule over you, whose faith follow, those who have had the rule over you, who have taught, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. So the first resource we have is this book. Now I have nothing, and I have to confess to you, I have uh, I have tried my best through the years to to learn something in other fields, trying to learn something about counseling and trying to learn something about psychology and trying to apply it to the word of from the word of God to the needs of the people of God. So I'm not against educating myself in other areas, but the book we have to help the people of God with is this book, the Word of His. Grace. It's grace from first to last. So he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. There are the two great resources 
that overseers, leaders have. This book and the throne of God. Not just the idea of prayer, commending you to God, but to all the resources God has made available to us through His Word to meet the needs of the people of God. He says, that is your resource for the day in which you, you live. Able to build up and to give an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. We have, we have all the resources in this book needed to feed, to strengthen, to guide, to teach the people of God. All come from the book that we hold in our hand. So there are distressed saints. There are difficult saints. Hmm. There are detoured saints. There are discouraged saints. There are doubting saints. Thank God there are developing saints. And those in leadership have to have a sensitivity to the varied needs and be able to come to this book and apply what is needed from this book to each and every individual case. It is a tremendous, tremendous responsibility. Has a tremendous accountability. And I don't think I'm stretching. Every place in 1 Peter where you read about glory, it is always preceded by suffering, by paying a price. Now when he comes to shepherds in chapter 5, he speaks to shepherds about their responsibility. And he says, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you'll receive a crown of glory. Is he implying that there is going to be sacrifice and suffering that is linked with the glory? I think he is. I think everyone who leads the people of God, everyone who assumes a, a place of responsibility knows something of sacrifice, of sorrows, of grief, watching with tears at times at the needs of the assembly. But always remember there is a chief shepherd. We are just under shepherds. And our responsibility is to reflect something of the care, something of the compassion, something of the concern, something of the capability of that chief shepherd as we minister to and care for the flock of God which he has committed. So elders, overseers, bishops, leaders, shepherds, always working together in the plural, balancing each other, harmonizing with each other in the care of the assembly, and attending to this ministry which is so varied, but so valuable and so vital for an assembly's welfare. Shall we pray?